Hello, cyber friends. This is Chatting Cyber, and I'm your host, Mark Shine. This podcast focuses on how companies can help qualify and quantify the cost of a data breach. Chatting Cyber features some of the most well-respected privacy and cyber experts in the world. Join the conversation with business leaders, government agencies, and cyber experts to learn more about how and why they got into this ever-changing field that we call cyber risk. Hello, cyber colleagues. I am Mark Shine, the national co-chair of the Cyber Center of Excellence, and I am here with my very good friend, uh, John Mullen. John Mullen's the managing partner of Mullen Coglin, the uh, leading and largest privacy law firm solely dedicated to privacy and cybersecurity law in the U.S. John, welcome. Hi, Mark. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for joining the show today. Thanks. So, John, um, I guess my first question to you is um, oftentimes I hear the word data breach coach. Right. And from my understanding, you were the one that actually created the term. Is that correct? Well, it's it's kind of not correct. Okay. The truth of the matter is a friend of mine, Mark Greisinger, who owns Net Diligence, which is a very well-known company in the space. Of course. He coined the term, ha- having watched what I do for a living, yeah, he, he said, you know, we should call this the breach coach because it sort of makes sense and it illustrates the a- actual operations of what goes on, meaning, you know, our job is to help in a crisis under an insurance policy and bring to bear all the tools that insurance policy has, right? So that includes us as the lawyer, but it also includes forensics and PR firms. It includes notice firms and credit monitoring firms and those kinds of things. So the whole idea of the coach yep. is we're given a suite of tools by the insurance policies, and we're supposed to and, and do go out and use those tools as efficiently as we can to help your clients who you place the policies with. So, John, before we started taping the show, you told me that your firm handles close to a third of all breaches that are handled by insurance? Well, I mean, that's that's John's number, and right. not, not, nothing I can prove on paper. We Last year, we took in, in, the, num- in the neighborhood of 2,300 first calls. And there's all insurance driven. So what does that really mean? It means 2,300 companies with insurance called us, um, in most cases needing help, and in some cases thinking they had to do notice under their policy or something like that. But yeah, and and of the 2,300, I think 1,700 or so became open matters. So just looking at some of the statistics I see from some of the other you know entities out there, advising you know net diligence, people like that, um, ballparking about a third. Sure. Yeah. yeah. So we handle quite a bit, about so- nine a day, I think it is. Nine a day. Yeah. That's incredible. Trending up. So, so John, um, my question to you is, how did you become so entrenched in this space that you're getting now nine new calls a day? <laughs> One gets lucky once in a while. I got lucky 15, 20 years ago when a couple of the carriers and the brokers asked me to help teach the risk management community about the risk that's coming at them with the new statutes and the new technology. So having been asked to go out there and sort of beat the drum and tell people about what's going on, fast forward, you know, as the insurance carriers and the brokers had success writing, creating, morphing, and placing the policies, you know, eventually when you sell a bunch of insurance policies, what happens? Claims come in. And when there aren't incumbent lawyers, because there really weren't policies prior to that, you know, in any great way, you know, now we're talking selling policies from 2000 to 2005 or six. And at that point, there's some critical mass and there's enough risk and enough laws that the policy started kicking in and kicking out claims. Those claims came to us. And from there, it sort of just grew. So, so 2005, 2006 is really kind of when the claims really started coming to the firm. Um, wh- what have you seen change since 05, 06 to 2020 
in this space? Well, other than the obvious volume, right? Yeah. So we, we know that. The, the, probably the, the biggest, from my perspective, the biggest mover of the risk has been what I'll just call the monetization of data and the monetization of uh, bad actors. So, so when you first were in the business, when we were first looking at these claims, it was the occasional hacktivist, the occasional you know smart hacker who wanted to change his grades like the Ferris Bueller in the movie, or it was uh, nation state once in a while. And, and that's kind of who you uh, Rogue employees, people like that. Uh, once the dark web sort of really got its legs and you can make money by stealing data and selling it, well, that brings in a whole influx of new players, lots of them and bad guys. So there's that. And then the, once they figured out that ransomware is more than just a thing, then in some ways it's a lot easier to get paid when you blast out thousands of ransomware attacks. And even if a low percentage kicks in, you're going to get paid a lot. And heck, you don't even have to steal the data or sell the data. You just do the ransom and call it a day and move on. And you're not even necessarily in all likelihood, even in the country that you're attacking me in the U.S. So, you know, the big change has really been the growth of the industry, but it's driven by the growth of the risk, technology changing, the, the, um, the forms, meaning the insurance policies, have morphed or a lot broader than they used to be. Mm -hmm. So the, the brokers know how to sell it better and appreciate the risks and teach their clients. The carriers have responded well to, you know, the different risks that are out there and figured out how to price it. So just the whole ecosystem has grown, but a lot of it does, in my opinion, come off the fact that there are more and more regulations, more and more bad guys. Sure. So, so what are, uh, you said you were talking about ransomware. What is the trend that you've been seeing in ransomware? Is it an increase in frequency, an increase in severity, a combination of both? Uh, so the answer is yes. <laughs> no, yeah, sure. It's, it's more cases, again, because more bad guys have figured out they can make money with less risk of getting in trouble. Yep. Um, it's more complexity because they used to come in, it used to be just sort of, hey, Mark or John clicked on the wrong thing and froze our computer. Now it's, they got in your system three weeks ago, they did their, their, their reconnaissance, they looked around, they figured out where the pain points were, and then at their discretion, after they did some other things in your system or not, uh, then they freeze you up, and then they demand the ransom. The other thing is the actual outright cost of the ransoms is going up. Sure, It used to be very rare to see a ransom demand at any size company in the six figures. Now that's the norm. So now when you see a ransom that's 12 grand or 23 grand, you, you, know, you, you dodged a bullet. It's because the average ones are going well into the hundreds of thousands, and we're seeing not a few, but plenty in the millions. It's incredible see the way that the industry has changed. Yeah. So John, when we talk about um, the post-breach incident response, again, mm -hmm. can you just give me a little bit about, you know, what makes your firm so unique in the incident response nature? I don't know that we're unique other than the fact that we've got 50 plus lawyers just doing that. So in that sense, I guess we're unique. But, but having gotten an early start in the business, we've been on the ride of watching the policies change and as they morph and include more coverages and we, we figured out who the right vendors are that are covered under the policies and they're really sharp in providing fast services. I mean, one thing I say all the time is the insurance carriers and the market figured it out. And what do I mean by that? I mean that, uh, in my opinion, the response provided under the appropriate insurance policy with the right broker and the right law firm and, and then all the vendors that flow from that is by far the fastest, most time and efficient way to do this. Uh, there's no great way to do it, but having teams, well, we've handled in my, my group of, of attorneys, 
you know, closing in on 20,000 cases over the last 15 years. Sure. And, and the forensic teams that the insurance carriers have identified and approved, meaning we can get access to them in minutes, not days. You know, you, you take us with them and then the other vendors as you go through the process. I just don't see that as a, there's not a real competitor out there in terms of speed and efficiency. And not to mention the fact, let's face it, when you're working in the insurance world, whether you're a lawyer or a forensic vendor or somebody else, you're more affordable. They've driven that price down of your hourly rate, so you become a pretty good deal in the scheme of things when you're comparing yourselves to lawyers who aren't under that umbrella or forensic teams that aren't under that umbrella or PR or notice, uh, things like that. Sure. So so let's talk, uh, we've been talking a lot about the post-breach incident. Let's talk about pre-breach mm-hmm. and the planning that our listeners could be doing and uh, well, two things. One, what can they be doing with law firms like yourself? And then what are some best practices that these uh, uh, listeners can be doing to help make themselves a better risk? The biggest challenge in the pre-breach context is budget yep. and focus. So to me, uh, I, I can't tell you how many vendors, how many how many brokers and underwriters I've talked with over the years, we're all dying to provide certain services pre-breach. Mm-hmm. You know, try getting someone to pay for it. And that's a real challenge. So to me, it's it's not so much about what's out there as in terms of services. It's about the willingness and the openness of the individual companies or entities to see that there is this risk and there is value in spending some budget up front. Um, it's, it's a misconception to think you have to be perfect, or if you begin the process, you're somehow held to a higher standard. Ultimately, if you do some more than you're doing now, you're going to be in a better place, both from a security point of view, but also from a compliance point of view, and down the road, perhaps in a litigation or a regulatory follow-up. So, John, would it be fair to say if somebody works with you pre-breach and they get their incident response plan, disaster recovery plan, data classification plan, you guys kind of get them up and running, mm-hmm. um, would it be safe to say that they have a, a, a greater likelihood of responding to a possible incident or breach quicker because they've done this kind of pre-diligence with you and your firm rather than if they just went willy-nilly and then the incident happened? So yeah, but I don't want to stress me and my firm in that in that response. I know you're trying to help me out there, but the reality is, um, I would tell you that the, other than some sort of baseline stuff, evaluate your own systems, make a plan based on that, and, and the best thing they can do is follow your lead and buy the right insurance. You know, to me, and, and I don't want to have like the whole moral hazard thing. So you do have to do pre work, and insurance is not a replacement for due diligence, yep. but. Assuming some level of due diligence, having the right policy basically is handing you a full toolbox on how to respond properly if you use it. Understood. You know, John, one of the issues that we hear in the marketplace all the time is these ransomware payments, as you mentioned, are now in the six figures and now preaching sometimes seven figures. Um, the carriers are people are saying, well, why are the carriers willing to pay these ransomware demands? Do you want to talk a little bit about the business email? Um, I'm sorry, the business interruption aspect of ransomware and how that's in, impacting some of your uh, your clients? Well, let me address a couple things there. You said, why are the carriers willing to pay it? The carriers write a policy that pays it. And so they're going to pay it. They're going to live up to the product that they wrote. So I don't know that it's a willingness thing. It's they take a risk, they underwrite it, they get a premium, and and if the risk comes, you know, and and hits them, they're going to pay. Uh, The the insurance guys are in the business of backing up their policy. So from that perspective, that's usually the way that works. Um, In terms of what was the rest of the question? I'm sorry. So ransomware paying, uh, business interruption, and then I mean. 
yes, there is a business under interruption risk when you have your fro- your systems are frozen, right? Mm-hmm. So everybody, insurance carrier, but more importantly, the business owner is motivated to get this problem resolved as quickly as possible and as safely as possible so as not to reoccur um, in a way that's going to avoid business interruption or minimize business interruption claims. So everybody in that insurance ecosystem, you as the broker, me as the as the law firm handling the problem, you know, the forensic teams, the the company itself, the carrier, everybody's on board. No one wants business interruption claims. Yep. No one. That's not good for anybody. I mean, I could there's a couple of people maybe it's good for in terms of forensic <laughs> accountings and in certain law firms, but by and large, everybody wants to avoid it. So on top of the the obvious nature of, hey, I want my business to run, you know, I also don't want to make a business interruption claim if I can afford it. It's there. It, it happens. Sure. And, and it happens probably more now than it did two years ago, but it's just part of what happens. Sure. Switching gears a little bit, John. So um, our clients come to us sometimes and they say, Mark, we were compromised. Do we call the lawyer first or do we call the FBI first? Call the lawyer first. What, what's your thoughts about engaging law enforcement? Well, we talk to law enforcement on a daily basis on multiple different cases per day. Okay. And usually it is the FBI. Sometimes it's the Secret Service, but it, it's usually feds of some sort. Um, they're, we're happy to help them out and share with them uh, with the permission of the clients. Uh, rea- realistically, they are not able or positioned to help us, meaning over the course of thousands of breaches, um, on all that many cases. Sometimes they do, yeah. sure. And we've had cases where they've saved clients millions of dollars. And they're, and we certainly like the FBI and work with them closely, and we'll work um, to, to the extent we can to help them and, and share information, things like that, with the assumption that, you know, with clients saying okay to it. Uh, and it never hurts to talk to them in terms of big picture stuff. Yep. But on a day-to-day basis, you're not compelled to, to work with law enforcement, although it's never a bad idea to share some information if you can. So thinking that we're in 2020 now, looking at the future, what is the next 10 years of cyber risk going to look like? Well, there's going to be a lot more of it. Um, And the insurance side, you know, again, this is a lawyer talking about what the market in insurance is. So what do I know? I spend a lot of time with brokers and underwriters and claims folks. Uh, The sense I have is outside the Fortune 5000, that the market penetration for this product, meaning cyber insurance of some type, you know, is nowhere near 15%. Some people will tell you it's under 10, meaning that the industry has already grown as much as it's grown, and we haven't hardly you know, scratched the surface in the non-Fortune 5000 in terms of companies buying it. So that's just on the, the, the market side. Uh, on the front side, you know, there's just more and more companies who are going to get hit because, the, again, going back to the monetization thing, now that there is a method by which a bad guy in some other country can attack U.S. companies and make money on it and not be caught because they're they're exchanging Bitcoin, which is not traceable as far as I know. Yep. You know, they're anonymous. So what what other possible outcome is there other than more? So, John, as we think about all that you've accomplished in your career, what you've done for the cybersecurity industry, what you've done for cyber law and privacy law, how do you want to be remembered? <laughs> I don't think I've done anything, uh, <laughs> you know, frankly. All, all I've done is fill a niche that sort of just evolved. So I don't, I don't want to be remembered. I want to keep working for a long, long time, Mark. You and I are going to be at this for another 20 years plus. Um, no, I, I, the industry itself is a, it's cool to be part of. It's sort of a combination of insurance and law in an area that's growth. Because frankly, in, the, in both sides, how many different net new insurance products are there every generation? Not many. How many new law areas are there? Not many. So it's neat to be in that niche. 
John, I very much agree. Uh, you've been a great friend of mine. You've been a great mentor. I certainly appreciate you coming on the show and chatting cyber. Happy to do it.